0: I was working out an engineering apprenticeship in Gisborne when the war began. Joining up was the thing to do at the time. Three of my best friends joined and I made it four. It was more a high adventure than anything else. Mind you, I felt patriotic about the British Empire too. I was fond of war stories and empire stories. We were worried because the war might be over before we got there, that it was only going to last a few weeks. We couldn't get there fast enough to be in the show. Egypt, when we landed there, was all hard training. We were subjected to pretty severe route marches up to 24 miles a day with full pack on and the top screwed onto your water bottle which was where it was supposed to stay. I think that hard training in Egypt was responsible for a lot of the sickness we had on the Gallifle Peninsula. Men grew restless, they started to say, what the hell are we here for? Even on the dawn of the move to the Dardanelles we didn't know where we were going. We were just going. We had more reliable information from a fortune teller we met in Egypt. Three of us were coming out of Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo one night. We were waylaid by an old scallywag who offered to tell our fortune for two piastres or some other fine sum. We had just enough supercargo to say, right mate, away you go. I was first through. He said, you are going to fight in a war and you will be wounded but not killed. You will go home. Then he went through the other chaps. He said to the next, you will be in a fight too, but I don't know about you. To the third of us he said, you will be mixed up in the same fight and injured, badly injured, but you will go home. The fortune teller said quickly, I don't know any more," and took off. But that was how things turned out. I was wounded and got home. The second man was killed on Channock Bear. The third survived with shell shock and never really recovered from it, though he lived on many more years. I didn't go ashore on Gallipoli until April the 27th. When we were on the island of Lemnos, before the invasion fleet sailed, an officer told us, now there's some of you blokes going to be left behind to clean up, so you can't all go. We're not going to call for volunteers because we know we won't get any, so we're going to put names into a hat. My name came out of the hat, it was like a kick in the teeth. So I had to stay back on Lemnos, cleaning up while everyone else sailed on to Gallipoli. There were about 250 of us tidying up a mess of tens of thousands of troops had left. On April 27th, two days after the landing, we were taken to Gallipoli on a British destroyer. We knew we were in a war within a mile of Anzac Cove. Barge loads of wounded were being ferried out past us. We started to lose men right away to shot and shell. We lost between 12 and 15 men as we were finally rowed ashore. Some recovered, some didn't. It was the only time I felt perhaps I shouldn't be there, that I might have been a bit too ambitious. War was pretty severely thrust upon us as you arrived at Anzac Cove. The men I went ashore with were most of the Australians and I found myself in the 4th Battalion of the Australian Infantry. It took me three days and all the confusion and commotion to find my own unit. They were up the front line, up Walker's Ridge. When I'd arrived I found that five out of my eight mates had disappeared. I'd ask, where's old Nick? Where's he gone? I'd get the answer, we haven't seen him since the landing so God knows where he is. Nobody seemed to be able to tell you how they died. A lot of Wellington's time was eventually to be spent at Quinn's post. It was really a fort. It gradually developed from an open trench line into a fortification with sealed-in trenches and overhead protection the whole lot. We had wire netting up to stop bombs thrown from the Turk line. If they hit the wire, they rolled back down the parapet into no-man's land and exploded there. If they went over the top of the netting, they rolled down to a hill to our rear. Quins was absolutely isolated out on a little peninsula, as it were, from the Anzac sector. Turk guns were trained on it from all directions. One day I saw a movement across the ground up towards Pope's, and I fired it. Half a minute later, I got a whizz-bang shell back at me. That was a nasty moment. I had a worse one later on when I was on watch, about two o'clock in the morning. There was only about 35 feet of no man's land between us and the Turk trenches. I thought I saw movement out there. Lofty Chapman, my teammate, was asleep beside me. I gave Lofty a kick and I said, Have a look at this, I think there's movement out front. He said, bugger you, I'm having a good sleep. So I went on with my watch and again I thought I saw movement. I kicked Lofty again and told him he got up in a bad mood. I moved off the fire step and Lofty moved up. He clapped his eye to the loophole and was shot right through the eye. That was the last of my tent mate, Lofty. I didn't cry unless Gallipoli was one long cry. If you cried once, you'd never stop. There were friends going every day and sometimes every hour of the day. Wonderful friends. Aggrieved inwardly. That was all you could do. As the war went on, you could forget the death of a very fine friend in five minutes. My sorrow, so far as Gallipoli is concerned, is all those mates are lost. That and never having a decent look at the place. At Quinns, you could never put your head up and have a good look. If some enterprising boy hadn't adapted a few old rifles and made them periscopic... There would have been even more casualties. They were crude, but they were wonderful. They helped us hold up Quinn's. They should be in every military museum in the world. The most terrible thing at Quinn's was the stench of the dead. The bodies were only yards away. There was no relief from that brain-numbing stench. Otherwise, we were good landlords. We were proud of keeping the place tidy. We would worn other units when they came in to relieve us for a while. You would look after the place. You'd leave it as you found it. Quinn's, to all intents and purposes, belonged to the Wellington Infantry Battalion and we were proud and proprietorial. Then there was the tunnelling. It was a silly old business, but frightening. We'd tunnel towards the Turk trenches, and they'd tunnel towards us and place charges. It was always night working down in the tunnels. You'd be pushed along one of these tunnels towards the working face, and there you'd chip away with your little entrenching tool and scrape the soil into a sandbag and pass it down on a line of blocks until it was disposed of. It was even more frightening when you listened and heard a Turk tapping away somewhere underground nearby too. I don't think our main charge in the mine gallery under Quinn's was ever blown. I don't think anyone was game. I think it would have blown everyone, the Turks and us too, through the roof. Boredom was something you had to fight too. Through June and July, up to the big offensive in August, the boredom was draining. There was nothing to do and nowhere to go to avoid it in a place like Quinn's. You'd look for someone you knew to talk to, like someone who'd been off wounded and had got back again. They might have seen a girl, a woman, who was good to look at while they were in hospital. They'd talk about her. Little things from another world. If you were back on the beach for a break, you'd go and look for the Indians and cadge a chapati off them. Food was everything. At no time on Gallipoli was the food reasonable or fit to eat. Even the water ferried ashore through the breakers with brackish and foul. As for food, the tins of bully beef stood in the hot sun, probably 100, 115 degrees Fahrenheit and of heat for days and days and end. There was a cat's meat floating around in a tin of oil that was your lot try making a hearty meal out of that we knew that the august attack was coming for a long time the big sap we were digging out to the left of the anzac position and all our fatigue time wasn't for drainage purposes what we didn't anticipate was that we were going to be pushed up into the high country into the surrey bear range rather than across the flats in from suvla bay we didn't know we were going high until we were Congregated at the, the end of a big sap on a day in August. Then we were told what we were supposed to do, so up we went. We moved at dusk. There were one or two skirmishes on the way. The object of the exercise was total silence no bullets, only the bayonet. But we heard this haka and war cries from the Maoris when they hit the Turks. There wasn't a man left when the Maoris had finished with them. We were instructed at all times to maintain the line of advance. In that steep terrain, it was an impossibility. We became little groups, sticking at it until we could find a way up and through. In places, the line was just one or two persons. It was very erratic until we got to the apex, short of Chanuk Bear. Then we got into some sort of water for the main advance. That was early in the morning of August the 8th. I was very near the right of the line. The first I knew of the fighting was little rifle fire to my left as we got to the top. Chanak Bear was only a ridge, and it was well covered by the Turks on Hill Q and by others on high ground. The first we knew was rifle fire and a bayonet attack. When we got to the top, we didn't have time to look at the view. I never saw the narrows. There were just hills and more hills, and we asked ourselves, where do we go from here? Because there didn't seem anywhere to go. At that stage, we didn't know where we were. We were told later that Hill 971 was our objective, some 1,400 yards on. Who knows? Nobody thought to mention it. There we were on Chanak Bear. We were soon getting even less of a view. The rifle fire became more and more intense until there was just a sheet of bullets almost at ground level. Our field of fire was between us and Turk heads coming over the hill. The first thing we saw of them was heads. Heads were our target. There soon seemed to be thousands of them. The heads, our targets, got bigger as they came closer. By the time the Turks were fully in view, they were within 20 feet in bayonet range. It was time to start with the bayonet. Then you discovered that your rifle was too hot to hold. I mean, red hot, practically on fire. You had to grab for a cold one, perhaps a Turkish rifle, as long as it was cold. The attacks became more intense. Wellington infantrymen had two or three rifles, one to shoot from, and the others to use for bayoneting. Short rifles and short bayonets were best. The bayonet fighting seemed to last weeks. So I suppose it was only minutes. No one likes bayonets, and the Turks seemed to like them even less than us. I don't remember any charges, it was all stand and defend with the bayonet, just a mad whirl. In the back of my head I could hear the words, Get the bastard before he gets you, get him or he'll get you. That was the fact of the matter, I don't remember bayonets going in, perhaps I shut my eyes, I don't know who I killed and who I didn't. There was always the chance that people with very bad wounds will recover, so you don't know. I wasn't conscious of all the fighting around on Channock Bear, only that in my little area. At one point, eight or nine of us were cut off and surrounded by Turks. They motioned for us to put our rifles down and hands up, but we got stuck in and got out. It was they who finally had their hands up in the air. That episode seemed to last hours, but it must have been a fraction of a minute. The Turks were heaving bombs at us too. We had no bombs and we couldn't shoot back at bombs. And It was hot, hard and thirsty. It's only when your tongue actually rattles around in your mouth that you can say you're thirsty. That's no fable, actually rattling around in your mouth. We stripped off our tunics and we were fighting in singlets and in the buff. No one had hats or badges or identification, the Turks were the same. Soon it was so, you could only identify a Turk by his hat, his whiskers and his swarthy complexion. I lost my dearest friend Teddy Charles that day. We joined up together and saw the campaign through until Channick Bear. There were no officers left, no NCOs, just soldiers. Teddy led 30 men forward to try and hold the ridge. He called, come on Vic, but I was impeded by Turkish fire. We never saw those 30 men again. Later in the dark, I thought I heard Teddy's voice calling for his mother, then for me. By then, the place was crawling with Turks and I couldn't get to him. He's still on Chunuk Bear, a pile of bones. We were terribly aware of our wounded as the day went on. They filled our little forward trench. It was only three feet deep in the first place. It wasn't long before the dead and wounded were so piled in the trench that we were trampling on them, standing on them with cover only up to our knees. All the time you were thinking, what can we do for them? But there wasn't anything. There wasn't anything you could do for them. They might have been friends, but there was nothing to be done. It would have been suicide for a stretcher-bearer to come forward to us. There was just this curtain of fire across the crest of Channock Bear, a foot to 18 inches above the earth. I know stories that we shot some of our own wounded up there on Channock Bear. Personally, I never had to face up to that one. And yet no doubt it would have been a mercy, a blessing for wounded to have been shot by their own men. The bombs that went into the trench made even more carnage among the wounded and dying underfoot. There were more and more dead. If I was asked to give a description of the colour of the earth on Chunuk Bear on the 8th or 9th of August, I would say it was a dull or browny red. And that was blood, just blood. It seems the Otago blokes decided the Wellingtons up the front were getting it pretty hot. They fixed their bayonets and came up and mingled with the Wellingtons in our sector and gave us a hand. At least I have that impression. It might have been another angel of mons, an illusion of vision that's what things were like the pressure seemed to ease he didn't seem so lonely but the crowd on the other side didn't diminish much saw out our colonel malone occasionally that day he was moving a fair amount he kept boosting our morale and he always had a kind word an encouraging word ease off shortly he promised they'll get tired of this little nothings then he suddenly went missing and he heard he'd been killed marking out a trench line Many of our wounded were never seen again. They would slide down to the bottom of, them of ravines, not be able to get out and die there. We had to empty the dead from our trenches and drop them into the ravines too. Their bones are still there. I was on Chunuk Bear until 9th of August. No food, no water, and the Turks were safe as churches until they were in yards of our bayonets. In a lull in the fighting, I would go and collect water bottles from our dead. You had to keep yourself going, no one else could. British troops relieved us on the 9th and were hit by an enfilade fire from their own men. Jerkers climbing hill Q were wiped out by shell fire from a British destroyer. I remember moving downhill in the dark. There was a bloke screaming somewhere, screaming terribly. He could have been a New Zealander. He could have been a Turk. We looked for him in the dark and never found him. He just went on screaming. Scared? Sometimes you're too scared to be scared. I would laugh at any individual who says he wasn't afraid. Those who say they're devoid of fear talk absolute phooey. I was paralysed with fear. I was so paralysed with fear on Chumak Bear and in other places on Gallipoli that I was sometimes incapable of action, but lucky enough to get away. Strange to say, though, at no point did I ever think I wouldn't get home. I was wounded, but I did get home. I was torpedoed in the triumph, but I still got home. That fortune teller in Cairo had it right. I was wounded after we lost the summit on August the 15th. I was hit out with a party, covering engineers, laying barbed wire and hit through the shoulder. I walked to a dressing station where the wound was plugged. I was given half a pannikin of rum and told to make my own way back to the beach. I met a man who had half a leg blown away. We helped each other down. I don't know how we made it. Perhaps the rum floated us down. I left Gallipoli two days later. The Gallipoli campaign was very little use to anybody. We never got further than 2,000 yards into Turkey and took months and thousands of dead to do it. The orders were so mad that you wondered whether you were mad or... (laughs) <laughs> the lunatic who gave the orders. It was noticeable that the author of the campaign, Winston Churchill, never showed his face in Australia or New Zealand. World War I and World War II were supposed to be for the good of civilization. The good hasn't come off. Havoc and sorrow and distress don't make a good foundation for a better world, for anything at all. The fact is that New Zealanders were led up a garden path. No one wanted to admit it then or later. I have waited 70 years for the truth to be told about it, which has never been, and if I live to see the day... Perhaps I'll die less angry.